Good day. Since the conditions of our voyage are a little unpredictable, we ask that you remain seated at all times. That's as far as I'm going to go with that one, because um, that's the Finding Nemo submarine voyage. And uh, that's already tied to an existing franchise. So it's a little weird that we don't have much to work with for uh, this one. But there you go. I mean... Ride intro out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> From what I gathered about this, I, you don't see it as much in the parks at all, actually. What, Australia or The Rescuers? The Rescuers. <laughs> both, really. Both, yeah. Both movies. Welcome to the Animusings podcast. Uh, we are back after a, a kind of unusual bit of uh, hiatusing for a uh, November double feature. Uh, I am your host, David King. And I am your other host, Kayla King. And joining us tonight, we have two guests who you might know from the Arkham Sessions podcast or maybe from a couple other podcasts. Uh, I think off the top of my head, Lattes with Leia comes to mind. But we have uh, Brian Ward and Dr. Andrea Linamendi. Hello. Hi. How are you By two? the way, the reason you don't see the rescuers represented is because they're they're mice. They're tiny. Uh, oh. <laughs> well, actually, that makes sense, too, because uh, the cats at Disneyland would have a field day oh. if they were actual size, you know? And they already have their own branding, if I recall. Like, they have an Instagram following. The cats of Disneyland have mm-hmm. an Instagram. Mm-hmm. Of course, the cats might also be why you don't see yeah, any I representation think, of I think you just answered, the rescuers. Your own, you answered, answered your own question with that one. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Um, excellent. So we're, we're here to discuss, uh, 1990s. Yes, 90. The Rescue. It's 90, right? It's 1990, correct. All right. Awesome. I got it right the first time. I'm so proud. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so this is 1990s The Rescuers Down Under, which is, if I am right, the first true Disney sequel. You are correct. Although I will argue till the day I die that Saludos Amigos has a sequel and that's the Three Caballeros. It's because it references back to. It doesn't, feel like amigos. A, it doesn't feel like a sequel, though. <laughs> I'm still going to stand by it, though. It's kind of a sequel. This is the true first true Disney sequel. This is this is the legitimate sequel. This is like, for all intents and purposes, a sequel. Yes. All right. So. Uh, um, uh, I guess it, there's two ways we can usually begin this. It could be I could discuss the actual history of it or we could discuss our own personal histories with this first. That might not be. Why don't we? Yeah. Why don't we do that? Why don't we start there? Um, so uh, I, I open the floor to our guests uh, for to start this one. Okay, Drea. Yeah. So I just confessed to Brian, I don't know, maybe when I definitely talked about this a couple times, but when we uh, signed on to do the rescuers down under, I confessed to Brian that not only have I seen this movie before, but I've seen the first 10 minutes of this movie about 20 times. And the reason for that is once I got the movie on um what is it the clamshell yeah, the do you clam- remember the the, the beautiful white uh clamshell vhs cases and of course um the disney collection was just um packaged and prepared so nicely this was a big deal each time they would release them my family would buy them and i remember once we got the rescuers down under for some reason i would get up early this must have been elementary school, but I would get up early and as soon as I was ready to go catch the bus, like I would give myself a few minutes to watch the beginning of this <laughs> film. Like I would just watch when the kid rescues the eagle and flies, like soars through the sky, like forms a bond with the eagle. And then that's when I would turn it off. Like I'd be like, that was fun. <laughs> It's That's not. The perfect it's movie. so. Cra- it's not as if later in the day I would watch the rest of the film. I would just watch the first 
10 minutes. And so as the months went on, the first 10 minutes started to look worse and worse because you were stretching the tape. You were tracking it. The rest of the movie was Was pristine. Yeah, I wouldn't. (laughs) No, I, I, as a child, I would not have even thought about the damage I was doing to this VHS tape. But I don't don't think a lot of us did, though, for those of us who owned this. I actually admitted to David during the uh, Little Mermaid because I used to love that movie when I was very little, like two, three years old. And I destroyed that tape because I watched it so often. Like, it actually got ruined. I still have the clamshell, but that tape is gone. But I, I will never see that tape ever again. Uh, my history with this movie goes way back to about four hours ago. <laughs> have you never seen it before this? I had never seen this movie before. And then I watched it at lunch. <laughs> um, but I didn't really grow up on it. it. 1990 would have been a little out of my like prime Disney, um, you know, because that was that was right toward the end of Disney making what was c- sort of considered bad movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it it was not in my wheelhouse probably at the time. And I remember watching the original rescuers when i was very little uh, i think it what that came out in 77 it was yeah, it was 77 so that was my birth year so mm. uh i saw it probably you know in a re-release a couple of years later three or four years later and uh uh you know it it didn't it, it didn't like ring any uh, amazing bells for me Mm-hmm. So uh, I, it's not necessarily a sequel that I instantly had to go see. Um, so, yeah, today was a completely new experience. And uh, I just have to warn you all, I have many questions about this film. <laughs> I remember you messaging me just before we were recording this going, I have so many questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And at that point, I think I'd only watched those first 10 minutes. <laughs> That's that Drea is referring to. So, uh, yeah. Ten, Congratulations, ten. you've experienced a, a a big, significant portion of of Drea's childhood now. So, <laughs> um, what about you, David? Uh, this was not one I owned, but it was a frequent rental. I think I actually saw this before I saw the original Rescuers, so it surprised me to know there was a second Rescuers film, and it was older and from before this. I don't think I had correlated in my mind that there was a another Rescuers film for a while. And then I think it was re-released on VHS. And I was like, oh, I've never seen this. So I went out and, and saw that too. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I, think, I still think I prefer the Rescuers Down Under. Like mm-hmm. in the end, I still do. And I know I actually, just to refresh my memory, I went back and listened to our Rescuers episode, the one we did with Paprika. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's interesting. I think there I was even saying, no, I think I... Oh, over the course of time, I can appreciate what the rescuers did, but the rescuers down and under was a um, was a childhood favorite. Mm-hmm. I I really really liked this movie, and um, watching it again, I think it still holds up for me in a lot of areas. Um, but yeah, I didn't own it; I just happened to rent it a lot. Thank you, one dollar video that no <laughs> longer exists. Uh, I actually did own it, similar to Drea. Family collected all the clamshells, um, and this was definitely a clamshell I owned. Um, I know I saw this film first before I saw the original Rescuers, but it wasn't far apart. I want to say, like, I, I knew the Rescuers existed, but I know I watched it later on, but this was the one that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of memory, I didn't watch it as much, but I do always remember the beginning. Like, the beginning is 
seared into my brain. I didn't watch it like Drea, though. I didn't watch it, but like, <laughs> in, in terms of... Uh, has, has Drea become our benchmark for yes. how often to watch a thing? <laughs> Perhaps. But that makes me feel validated that you say the. it's not as if you've watched it as many times as I've watched it, but the first 10 minutes does have some meaningful um, connecting uh, element to it. There's something about the beginning of this film that is really touching. And, and so people do remember, you know, if you remember anything from the film, maybe that's what people remember from it. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I think whenever I thought of that movie, I always think of that beginning scene. It's such a good, it's almost self-contained too, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just this, we'll we'll get into that. We'll get into that in more, in more detail and kind of talk about why. Um, But yeah, I think maybe, uh, Kayla, you've dug up the, the movie's history. I did. Um, dug it out of Nightmare Canyon. Strangely enough, um, there is a couple of recent articles on Rescuers Down Under, and I was, oh. I was surprised, but it did provide some good information. Okay. Um, and legitimate information other than going to the Wikipedia page. which <laughs> The depth so, of the, the ultimate place for research. Yes. <laughs> well, it, it's like you go there, I'll go there, and then I'm like, okay, I got to confirm if this is real, and then have to go elsewhere. She does. She does her work. Uh, so um, this uh, development for this began in 1986. Uh, this was when... Um, uh, Eisner was in power and um, they were in Katzenberg as well. And everyone was pitching ideas. They had the gong show that was going on where they were like, how about this? Let's do this. I got an idea. How about this? <laughs> so um, someone pitched the idea, a sequel to the rescuer set in Australia. And that must've been an interesting pitch meaning. The nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's surprisingly enough, it shouldn't have worked because this was, First of all, The Rescuers, like you said, was released in 1977. This is a, like, between the time that it was, like, the year, the, the, the year range between, uh, the releases is 13 years. And by the time this movie would have came out, like, all the people that grew up with The Rescuers are older now. But. If I remember correctly, like, The Original Rescuers was also not a musical. No. Uh, neither was Black cauldron and i think maybe this was like the third movie ever that disney had not done like uh, musical numbers uh actually there have been others that weren't musical numbers as well um i could go through because i remember watching someone david and i the rescuers did have musical moments in it too so i'd say the rescuers down under doesn't have a single musical number or musical break anywhere in it because like in the rescuers you had the musical montage moments with like oh yeah that's kind of ethereal music at the beginning and um, then of course like there the, was a um, song called who would Tom- rescue me and tomorrow is another day like that's those those moments would come up in in uh, the rescuers but in in this one no there's no like there's no 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 individual singing a song though it it does have a i i'll say this before i know we're going to get a little further in but i love the score for this movie mm. Like, the score yep. of this movie is very good, in my opinion. Um, but, uh, so because of that range, they were like, well, why would we go with that? But um, a lot of the people working at this time were fond of The Rescuers. It did make them a lot of money. Remember, Rescuers was one of the films that helped keep the Disney animation uh, studio alive. Mm-hmm. But not only that, Crocodile Dundee was like one of the most popular films in 1986. <laughs> and they're like, we need to capitalize on that Australia. Come on, peoples. <laughs> um, so, uh, they agreed to it and, uh, went with it. 
Um, one of the most interesting things about this film is that it is the um, first, like, actual digital feature film ever made. As in, uh, so, yes, the animation and backgrounds were done traditionally, but the coloring and the effects and the final film printing, digitally. All done digitally. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. I think the backgrounds were CG, or, or, like, I think those were computer animated. The The animation certainly was uh, traditional but but yeah, I recognize the caps. And uh, this or, is this was their first use of it. Um, really, the, mm-hmm, like it, like the entire feature was their first use. I, it, uh, at least that's what I'm reading. It's uh, there had been elements. Obviously, there had been elements that or they'd used uh, uh, CGI before yep. in there. But I mean, yeah, yeah. most famously, the one I could think of where they first really kicked it off was the the Great Mouse Detective. But um, here, uh, here you see it a lot. Yeah, being used on the, the this film for the very first time. Yep. Wow. Uh, and Caps, by the way, is Computer Animation Production System. And it cost the studio $10 million. <laughs> and but imagine how much it saved the studio in just man hours. After, I mean, I guess if you know what Caps is, you know. But. Yeah. Well, here's another interesting thing. They also um, had help from a little um, not well-known, well-known studio at the time called Pixar. What is this Pixar you speak of? <laughs> Yeah, this is uh, Pixar's, uh, like, one of their first collaborations with uh, Disney. Hmm. So, um, and, uh, yeah, they, so it was released on November 16th, 1990. Um, It didn't do terribly well. I mean, it made its money, but, so the budget was about $38 million. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their box office, though, altogether was about forty-seven point five million. Oh, okay. So, Wait, did you say it was released? What what date? November sixteenth, nineteen ninety. November sixteenth. That is significant, and I can tell you why. Is that the same weekend of uh, the first Home Alone? Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, so that, that would be why it didn't do well. Yeah, so along along with it, Child's Play two and Rocky five were also out at this time. Rocky five. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe so, a little bit of a different audience for that one. Yeah, but yeah. Home Alone was out, and that actually did hurt. These are all very different movies, too. Child's Play 2. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Alone. I know. Child's Play 2 and Rocky 5. But John uh, Candy's in both of them, like uh, in Home Alone and and this movie. Oh, that's right, huh? Yeah. That's right, yeah. John Candy was in two. <laughs> this was like, was this like... This was like close to peak John Candy, right? Or well, John Candy had a had a quite a future before. No, I know. Time. I'm just thinking like he was super was super prevalent. John Candy doing cameos in movies. Yes, like, was he this was big enough that 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 it was a big deal if he was in a scene and would steal the movie in that one scene? Right. Was this around like? Do you, does anyone remember the uh, Camp Candy, the animated show Camp Candy? What? There was a John Candy animated show that was called camp candy i'm sorry and it was about john candy as a camp counselor that's pretty good yeah i i would believe it but i've never heard of it and i'm I'm gonna show it when we're done with this i'll we'll we'll pull it up i'll I'll find we'll find some clips of it but i remember i remember camp candy i wonder if this was around the same time so uh yes due to the popularity of home alone uh, along with um and this was something that really hurt the film as well so uh the film gets released and then the monday morning after that uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg pulled all television advertising for that film and decided, said, okay, we're moving to the other project. <sighs> well, the, the reason why he did that is because there was already, um, 
like a, a lot of the Hollywood was like, oh, this Home Alone film seems pretty good. It looks like it's going to ga- gain traction. Yeah. And then he's like, yeah, it is. Um, so so he's like, cut, let's cut our losses and just move on yeah, to the it's, next it's thing. It's a pretty decent business move. I mean, we, if you've lost so so dismally to uh, to a movie that's just going to pick up steam, you don't want to keep advertising a movie that's going to constantly come in second or third. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, now, there was, uh, even though the performance for that film didn't do as well there was a third film planned but oh. then um john candy passes away in 1984 and then eva gabor who does the voice of uh bianca uh passed away in 1995 um and actually rescuers down under was her final film mm. and that sounds about right now the project's been permanently shelved yeah well i mean i, I think having two movies I, I, that's still saying something knowing that bernard and bianca have two stories in two different Disney movies, which is actually pretty cool. Well, they wanted to bring back all of the voice actors that were in the original, and they did. They got uh, Bob Newhart to play Bernard again, Ava Mm. Gabor, and then also um, uh, Bernard Fox, who plays the the head of the Rescue Aid Society. Oh, yeah, yeah. The the Chairman Mouse, right? Same voice. Oh, wow. But but Orville's been replaced. Yeah. Yes. Orville, uh, because he would have, I think he died a couple years earlier. Yes, the actor did pass away. Actually, I think not not long that, like, that year, I think, 1986 or, like, Uh sometime, not, like, really recently, but, Mm -hmm. so they didn't want to replace a, like, get a new actor, voice actor for Orville, so... Um, they decide, oh, well, he has a brother, Wilbur. <laughs> lucky, lucky for them, they, they're, the gag that they had established in, back in the 70s was like, okay, now we can actually use this. <laughs> yeah. um, we'll actually have the right brothers as Albatross. <laughs> <laughs> um, Andrea's, Andrea's like, gag from the 70s? Orville and Wilbur, right? The- oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm tracking you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then that's the, the basic background for this story. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. You did your research well. And uh, yeah, um, I think uh, with that out of the way, let's let's gush about the movie a little bit, yeah. shall we? Um, <laughs> or uh, and maybe answer some of, of uh, Brian's questions. Um, so many questions. I got a few tidbits as we go, but. Um, All right. So, I mean, I think it's best to talk about the first 10 minutes of the movie because we've already talked about everything else. I got to say, I love the opening shot where it's that long um, zoom like that speedy zoom across sort of the the bush yes. of you know of um Australia and I'm like it's kind of a pastiche of different areas I noticed like it doesn't seem to be I've I've actually been to Australia back in I want to say 2010 I was in Australia and um I was mostly in New South Wales but like I got a sense of the environment and it I wonder how accurate this is if you got sort of this like kind of mesa kind of high desert but also kind of rainforesty they they area. sent the, they sent their animators over to Australia. I'm sure so. they did. So, but it's just a, it's a really good shot, and I love the and this is where the score kicks in, and I love it. The you know that um, well, you probably heard it at the beginning of this episode because I usually run the a little bit of the background music for the intro. So yeah, you get the sense of it, dear listeners. But um, this was it's, it's a good shot, and then we get to we meet Cody. Uh, yes, Cody is our young uh, child that we will follow throughout the film. Um, now here's a. Uh, interesting thing. So John Ranth, who is the super, uh, the story supervisor for this film, mm-hmm. uh, had the idea of making Cody an Aboriginal Australian. Oh, Katzenberg was what, said, "Let's why eat- did they go with that." Because Katzenberg was like, "Let's do a little blonde white kid instead. It'll <laughs> appeal more to our general audience." Oh no! 
course. Well, a little blonde white kid who is not Australian. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. His mom, but but his mom is so like. Well, okay. Sort of. There, there's like I, I, if if my ear was correct, I I found about one Australian accent in the. You were yeah. correct. Uh, so yeah. there is only one Australian actor in this whole. Well, movie. and that that Australian actor I recognized. Uh, I mean, I was a big General Hospital fan. Oh yes. Uh, so Tristan Rogers plays Jake, and uh, he was Robert Scorpio when I watched uh, General Hospital. Oh. I, don't know, I don't know if he's still around, but uh, but it, yeah, it, I found myself wondering. And as you were saying, in the heyday of uh, of Crocodile Dundee, uh, certainly that's around the era of Cocktail, mm-hmm. um, and and FX probably wasn't terribly much later uh i was wondering where where brian brown was i was wondering where paul hogan was like <laughs> disney couldn't afford to bring more australians into australia they just uh, didn't care it's kind of like fern gully they just didn't care <laughs> there, well fern gully had no australians let's be honest well you you unless you're really paying attention you almost wouldn't know the movie set in australia but that's another story for another time yes. Fern gully <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think I've ever actually seen Ferngully, so I didn't even know. I was like, what is an accent for Ferngully? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Ferngully is the uh, uh, another animated film that was in the early 90s. 92? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, because it, uh, it was made around the same time that uh, Aladdin was made. Because Robin Williams is in both. Yeah, he was working on both at the same time. Mm-hmm. But um, Talking about talking, though, like you... you You've seen the original movie much more recently than I is. Uh, have we established that this universe has people who talk to animals? Yes. Yes. But one of the things that we is kind of, I think cements this as what it's something I had established earlier is that only children can talk to animals. I think. Okay. And that was cemented because, in the first film too, because yeah. there was a little girl named Penny and only she could talk to animals. And, but the animals could talk to her too. Like, none of the adults in any of these movies show that they have the ability to communicate with animals. It's always just kids. Got it. Yeah, I, I have only a couple of recollections of the original movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I noticed that both movies uh, sort of end with crocodiles. That's uh, a good point. <laughs> oh, yeah, they both, they both do have crocodiles. Well, well is, it, is it crocodiles or alligators in New Orleans? We, uh, uh, were they Crocs? Or? I think they were Crocs. Okay. I can't remember what Brutus and Nero were, but yeah. they were. I know big, they, they were big, nasty, bitey reptiles. So mm-hmm. right, but yeah, same. What is the rule for which animals can talk and which just make grunts and various noises? Because if Frank Walker is voicing them. They're just grunts. Well, <laughs> at uh, first, I thought it was um, what was it? Uh, a kangaroo. Oh, yeah. Was mm-hmm. talking to the kid. But the, the smaller, some of the smaller little, like the wallabies weren't talking. And right. The, well, the eagle doesn't talk. But then, the, so I thought, oh, maybe it's a size thing. But then the eagle doesn't talk. So it's not a size thing. But the albatross does. So it's not a bird thing. And it's, and either. the mice talk. So that's not a size thing. What? what why? Like, There's also. I mean, to further to further complicate things, all of the bugs at the restaurant later in the movie they talk, but um, uh, but the, uh, the the little fly that Jake is playing checkers with doesn't talk. Oh yeah. So I mean, yeah. I don't know. I if understand. Any- 
I don't I don't know if there's any hard or fast rules in this universe about who can and can't system? talk. Is there a class system where some of them live in homes <laughs> because they can talk and the others live under under leaves because they don't? That's a good you know <laughs> Yeah. Well, at least in Secret and Nim they explained the why they were why certain animals had certain abilities and acuities and why some right, didn't right i think and don I, bluth who don bluth did work on uh the rescuers it was his last film with disney and so uh, one of his last films one of disney. his last films and mm-hmm. so i can imagine that you wouldn't be surprised if that was in the back of his head when he was working on i have to find a way to make this make sense in the secret of nim so because one of the things that bothered don bluth was like why couldn't we give whites in their eyes it's too expensive don and then he actually did the numbers he's like no it wasn't and he's like just do it just do as you're told don (laughs) yeah so so then we we have a giant eagle yes uh, inexplicable i mean we were told that it's super rare which Mm -hmm. it must be Mm -hmm. uh but it is a giant golden eagle now the, the the part that confuses me a little bit is we're introduced to the poacher um and but the poacher is not the same poacher that apparently wrestled that eagle to the ground and strapped it to rocks in the first place yeah this never really explained it's like a poacher's net or a poacher's trap or something well, it's like, definitely not a trap like you would have to because it was it was staked down into the it, like gulliver's travel style i thought it was his trap. like you would no no, no, think, no, he, he, he makes a good point. I have no idea what he is. I, I thought it was his trap because he was just joking about it. Like, or he was lying about it to make it seem to the kid like, oh, yeah, I'm totally not a poacher. No, yep. no, 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 no. We're talking about the, the eagle being staked down at the beginning, not the trap that oh, Cody falls in later. Oh, oh No, you're, you're, you're right. right. There, was, there must have been, it was a different poacher. But but what kind of poacher would like wrestle an eagle to the ground, then strap it with the ropes and then... Uh, Leave it? And, only to get rescued by like what a nine year old boy who is free climbing. <laughs> that was another free thing. Climbing. David and I were like, uh, yeah, sure. That boy would totally free climb that big. Uh, and well, the, mom, the mom's worried about whether he's got sandwiches in his backpack. I, like, I, I, oh, think it's a, I think it's implied that this kid is someone the animals turn to when they need help. Yes. So he, I think he's used to this. He's more, he puts his own safety on the line just to, to to save to save the different animals from poachers and I, now I'm but and and yeah willing to climb that huge escar- escarpment for like they couldn't have just put it like well, at the like had the animals walk towards the edge of a cliff like they could have just been at the edge it's like there it is not him having to actually climb it oh, it's more dramatic that way <laughs> only you yeah, can go only say, you can go and get it you are the only one who can do you're this. telling me that another bird could not fly up there and use the beak to uh to cut through the ropes like his little swiss army knife like no kid only you they <laughs> slow free climb the of that mountain. i have decided that this entire film takes place in this kid's traumatized mind and this <laughs> how he deals with losing his his father. Oh, yeah, wow. That, that is pointed out that uh, he lost his dad because um, it is a there is a point. Where it's, it's a throwaway line, but it's there because um, the they mentioned that they, the other other eagle is gone. And, and uh, McLeach later, yeah. our villain, yeah. states that he got the father and pulls out a feather to prove this. So he's very it, interested. It works within its fantasy of of how he could be heroic. And coincidentally, the eagle that he saves also is in this um Similar dynamic where these little eggs don't have a father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very self-rescuing. But then, uh, and this is just me being 
you know, the maybe, Awful maybe person. yeah, the cynical <laughs> year old that I am as I'm watching this movie for the first time. But that eagle took that kid up above the cloud line. <laughs> The, the air is so thin yeah, and cold up there. That kid, there's more damage being done to that kid's brain right now than maybe would have happened if he had hit the ground after he fell off the face. Here's, here's what I came to realize about this film. This film is completely style over substance. Like, uh, that, yeah. Because th- there is a reason why we connect with that first 10 minutes. Because that first 10 minutes involve a boy and an eagle flying together and you feel it. You feel like you're flying with this eagle. Like, it's kind of amazing. I Like, I, the last time yeah. I felt something like this was when I watched How to Train Your Dragon. And... And I would imagine if you're seeing it on a big screen, too, you're 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 just feeling that much more... Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, enraptured in, in by the the flight of it. But I also found, as the, as the eagle, like, uh, puts him between its talons and starts to poke it, like, poke him, like, uh, tickle him, I was sort of like, is he... Is she judging how much meat is on that kid? <laughs> taking him back to the nest, and then and then they do they land in the nest, and I was like, oh god, where are the kids? Like where <laughs> she is bringing this boy home uh, for other huge eagle babies to uh, to eat? But no, apparently she's saving him for later when they hatch. <laughs> Once a predator, always a predator, right? Yes. It's, so I have a question too about the RAS. Uh, okay, so oh yeah, so he's kidnapped by the poacher McLeish. Once, once we establish that, oh, you know where the eagle is. Uh, and by the way, if I were that kid, I'd be like, I found this feather. Yeah, about- he's yeah, he's a really bad. He's very self righteous. He's like, poaching's illegal. You shouldn't be poaching, right? To a poacher, an obvious poacher in- who has a gun, <laughs> yeah, and, and a vicious uh, Komodo dragon. I suppose. Do we know what Joanna is? I'm it's so- a goanna. Oh, it's a guana. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay, I mean a guana. A guana is any number. I mean, like any number of monitor. It's a it's a big monitor lizard, but it's but a big, I would imagine Joanna, quote unquote, well trained lizard that is voiced by Frank Welker. And yeah, then sure. uh, McLeach is voiced by George C. Scott. And the reason they did this is because, <laughs> which I love, the character animators loved his performance in Doctor Strangelove and then actually based his performance or based this character on his character in Doctor Strangelove. <laughs> and just allowed it to be as despicable as possible, which he completely is. I, I'm not going to lie. I I did find it weird that... Uh, he's this- a little... Here's the funny thing. If we compare him to Madame Medusa from the first one, mm-hmm. he's also a very one-note villain, but he's way more fun. He's very... George C. Scott always had a lot of charisma in when it came to acting. Yeah. And I've, like, I, you sure. watch Patton, and it's like, he oozes it. Yeah. Um, but... You wouldn't remember this. You guys are too young. But when I think it was Fox, uh, I think when Fox first came around, because I remember when Fox first hit the airwaves, um, it, it wasn't in that first round of shows. But shortly thereafter, they gave George C. Scott his own sitcom where he was the president. Really? And the took place in the White House. It may have even been called Mr. President. I cannot remember off the top of my head. But yeah, I just remember the opening title sequence was George C. Scott in bed, you know, sort of being interrupted by aides and family, you know, the the wacky uh, first lady and, and all that. And I remember it being like on one of those networks, some, mm-hmm. like Fox, you should try to find it. Oh, wow. But he was even charismatic as a sitcom actor. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> it says a lot about George C. Scott. Yeah. No, I, I, one of the things that did kind of bother me is like, why is this clearly should be Australian poacher as American as possible? But it makes sense to me that a big game American hunter would be this like sadistic. Sadistic. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> um, um, but you had a question about the Rescue Eight Society. Oh yeah. So okay. So he's kidnapped, and uh, and the little mouse goes and uh, wires a communique uh, across the Pacific to get to uh, Hawaii, and you know whatever. And, and all of this gets to gets routed to New York, where there was like a delegation of you know different. Uh, mice from all over the world. And I found myself wondering, we're literally talking about the other side of the planet. <laughs> Is there no one closer? That could <laughs> and why are all the delegates? I get that it's like a UN sort of thing, but typically the delegates from the UN don't go to save things. They would like get up on their, uh, on their uh, various systems and uh, get some sort of super spy like James Bond, who is significantly closer and more like, and I also wondered how do the other delegates feel when there isn't even a consideration about whether any of them should go? Like it's instantly, Oh, we all know who should go save this kid. Mm -hmm. And it's none of you. It's (laughs) people who aren't in the room. Right. Uh, Well, apparently I was like, Apparently, the former janitor and the delegation, the delegate from Hungary, are the ones to call on. Apparently, well, <laughs> yeah. well, at the time, to- so in the first one, when they heard about the child, um, they're like, "Who would like to volunteer?" And um, uh, Bianca is the first one to do it. She's like, "I'll do it." Uh, no one else would. And they're like, well, you're going to need someone to assist you because, you know, you're a woman and all, and it's the 70s. Uh, <laughs> so that's when she's been clearly eyeing the janitor. Like, she's been clearly eyeing Bernard this whole time. So she's like, I want him. And that's actually how it goes. Like, she's basically been eyeing him. That also explains why Bernard is Like, he's like Bernard. It, that explains a lot. I, I don't remember the first movie. So the idea that Bernard is kind of useless throughout the majority of this movie up until the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about that too. Yeah, of uh, course. Oh my gosh, you know, there's but, layers. But uh, that explains a lot about why she is so much more uh, suited for this than Bernard seems mm-hmm. to be. Oh no, she was originally a delegate, and um, so this was also based off a book, by the way. Um, but uh, they had to change some it. some details about the book because the mice job in the book was to um, assist prisoners of war. Oh. Yeah, that that was the premise of the book, and uh, they were actually going to originally do that in the first movie, but then the side, eh, let's not use prisoners of war, um, controversy, controversy. Uh, yeah, they were about to make Scruffy, which yeah. was about apparently chimpanzees and Nazis. So yeah. anyway, <laughs> this was actually a thing that was going to happen, but uh, <laughs> so instead they decided to be about mice that help uh, children in danger. But you raise you raise a good point. I think they they have their best of the best, and they have like things under their belt but i guess and i guess and i get that new york is kind of the nerve center of the ras Mm -hmm. but um you'd think they would get in touch with agents in the marshall islands and then or if that's the closest they can get and then yeah well i guess now they've got jake like now you know jake needs to be initiated as like a as like a field operative i would think oh undoubtedly i mean originally he was just kind of a landing 
operator, but like then he goes on this whole adventure with them and yeah, he he pulls his weight. He he goes above and beyond to help save that kid. So mm-hmm. um Jake Jake deserves to be an honorary member or at least get inducted in some way. And I Does realize I'm nitpicking a little, but if we're talking about landing operator, who's ever seen a bird need to take so much distance <laughs> from land anywhere? When when well, I guess they're used to this particular clumsy albatross. <laughs> They're like, oh, uh, no, it's this one. These are the apparently the only birds that will fly the Rescue Aid Society anywhere. Yeah, there's there's some logistical questions, to be sure. But, um, I mean, one thing I do like about this sequence, and we'll move on, because we only have, you know, we... But, but I actually really like this section of the movie when they're broadcasting across the world to eventually get to New York, because there's showing all the little clever ways they have to do the broadcasting. And one of the things Kayla and I both talked about in the first movie, and it's still prevalent here is it's fun watching how the mice have to be clever with um, the fact that they're small and they have to work with things a lot bigger than them. That was always one of my favorite things when it comes to like uh, small people in movies or small creatures in movies is how they interact with the bigger world. Like that's why one of the things I actually do generally love about the secret world of Arietti. Um, and I like that here too. I like the fact that um, how they have a uh, dinner at this fine restaurant in New York and how they're able to, and it actually shows how they like, Oh, how are we going to get food? And they like, like take food from like the uh, floor, the floor, the things that like draw from, <laughs> from like plates and use it to uh, feed mice that apparently are paying. <laughs> Having the mice and the crickets or whatever on top of the chandelier is a good bit, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another thing that I really like about this movie, too, and uh, I, I think it's a little more prevalent in the first film, though, is Bernard and Bianca's chemistry. Yeah. Like, they are... This is a couple that I definitely believe is a couple, and they... I, I think in the first one, they have a lot more chemistry. It, like, it actually shows that um, they do genuinely like each other and that they're flirting with each other and they... Like, help each other out. And it, it, it's here, too, but I feel like... Uh... Well, a lot of the movie, unfortunately, I feel like is Bernard being kind of down on himself because, A, he keeps missing the opportunity to propose to Bianca, which is, is set up in the beginning. And uh, and the second part is he feels overshadowed by Jake. So it's a combination of both, and I feel like it kind of bogs him down when, in the first movie, uh, he and Bianca were pretty equally like able to like pull each other out of the fire when things got tough and mm-hmm. they worked together really well. And I felt like that was Bernard is definitely taking a, a kind of a backseat in this for the majority of this movie. And that's kind of unfortunate. A backseat. Yeah. He's always like hanging off the back of a tail yeah. <laughs> creature animal. I, I feel really bad for him in this. I did in too. This, I think there's, there's an element of like, I think maybe the writers wanted it to be uh comical. There, there's an aspect of, um, just creating a, an ongoing joke about it. Um, but I, I wonder if then they were trying to somehow subvert this, um, the Australian, like the, the, uh, strapping, um, knife wielding, um, explorer, adventurer, hat wearing <laughs> guy like that. We had seen that through the eighties and actually well into the nineties, but that, trope or that idea was being leveraged and maybe we were being charmed by Jake, but we really should have been feeling maybe more connected and, and, and realizing that the gentleman here was Bernard. Hmm. And, and Jake does a real 180 at the end 
when Bernard finally gets the opportunity to propose, Jake's like, well done, mate. <laughs> yeah, I've been Just, pushing you this. Yeah, I've been pushing like, you to do this the whole time. Where were you? What, like, help him. He was the, he was the, he was the pushing uh, no. force. <laughs> or maybe that, maybe he did think that he was trying to, um, like edge him up. Like it, he had to set the bar higher for him. I'm sure he's so tired him. of doing that too. <laughs> <laughs> every couple that Jake encounters, he's like, Oh, I'm going to have to do it again. Well, very, but he was very <laughs> clearly interested in Bianca the moment she stepped oh, off yeah. the, off the albatross. Right. So, I mean, yeah. There's that, too. I feel like there's an ulterior motive there to what Jake is doing. So I want to think that it's like good bro Jake a little bit, but really it's Jake just trying to I feel like this impress Bianca. This love triangle or it's this, not it's, it's not a really good one. It's not very no. developed. Well, I, well, I, I, I'll say this much. Uh, it's not them both. You know, Bernard turns out to be the hero. So I think at that point, Jake does have to take a backseat because right. uh, you know and Bernard has the strength of a million mice <laughs> to be able to uh, pull a Cody from the water from oh, yeah. the, the tip ends. of a piece of rope and then hold the rope tie it around or, or use a branch as leverage and hold on to it to make sure that the kid doesn't fall off a waterfall uh, at that point if I were Jake looking at Bernard and his super strength, I'd be like, you know what? I, there's really nothing I can do. Well, get it. Now I, I see why the two of you are together. He did also ride in on a Razorback. There is something to be said about that. Um, there is a point, but there is a point where because uh, 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 Bianca's like Bernard will save us, and Jake's like he's like yeah he'll save us, and she, he's like great bluff. She's like I'm not bluffing. He will save us. Like you yeah. don't know Bernard like okay. I do. That's and a really sweet moment. I, I think and. It's tough because in the first movie, there is chemistry between them. There is a connection between them. And I think that does color my perception in this because I do, like, watching that film, it realizes, no, they do have a bond. There's and- a there's a little bit of a disconnect at a certain point in this movie with Bernard and Bianca. I mean, earlier on, it's fine. But, like, once they get to Australia and, and Jake is kind of stealing Bernard's thunder, that that disappears a bit. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate because one of the strong parts of the last movie was their relationship. So. Yeah. Well, in the first movie, though, would be their meet cute. And at this point, they have been together long enough that maybe they're a little too comfortable with one another. That's so the, true. Well, he's at the point where he's trying hes trying to figure out how to propose to her, too. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, they – one of – I also – one of the things I realized with this film that mm, – I'm, I'm not sure if I like it or not or if I dislike it. They tried so hard to put as much John Candy into this film that – Okay, so he plays the albatross. He flies them there. That should be the end of his journey, right? Why are we going through this? There's, why are we dealing with this whole scene about him? Oh, I've cracked, broken my back. Let's have like a bunch of scenes about me getting my back fixed. Oh, him in the well. Here, I I I disagree to a certain point. In the when he's, I actually f- enjoy the scenes where he's in the like that the uh, first aid the, the the sort of hospital truck. With that weird doctor and all those mice that are voiced by Rusey Taylor. I mean, look, it's 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 that a gag bit. That was Rusey Taylor. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She's a really good, yeah. When it comes to voices, she's really good. It, it was kind of insane, like when we realized that she's also the voices of Huey, Dewey, and Louie and Webby and Duck <laughs> as well. It's like she did a lot. 
Yeah. She really is a Disney uh, treasure. She, yeah. Uh, rest in peace, Rusi Taylor. I think she, she passed, she passed away just recently. So. She did, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, the reason I think those bits are funny is because they, they're not, it's like he, they keep him in the movie without him. Cause no, cause in, in the first movie, once, once, uh, Orville had done his thing, he took off. Yeah. He was just out of the movie until the There's end. There's no reason for Wilbur to also be in the rest of the movie I'm not, either. I'm not sure why Wilbur... No, that that's this is the part where I half agree with you. Because after he leaves, the, he gets out of the, the hospital truck, why is he going after Bernard and Bianca? He's fulfilled his duty as a as a essentially an airline. Yeah. <laughs> and yet he goes all, all out to save them. I'm like, where did, where did this part come from? I feel like they kept it in... The, and I feel like this is quite the case with a lot of the movie. They add in parts just for comic relief purposes. Like, yeah. it's the same reason, like, why does a bird need that many, uh, that big of an air, like, big of an airstrip? It, it really doesn't. It's mm-hmm. just for comic purposes. Um, it, it is for comedic purposes, but let's also be honest. Uh, this movie's already shy of an hour and a half. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's only an hour and 17 minutes. So, you know, you take out 12 minutes of him in the medical tent and you're talking about a, a movie that's just over an hour uh, without credits. And so... Hey, Dumbo did that, and it worked fine. <laughs> a, little, a little different time. <laughs> that was 1940. I know, I, I, I know, I know. I'm just being... But, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, well, but at the same time, if, if Disney was concerned about uh, box office, if, the shorter you make the movie, the more screenings in a day. Mm-hmm. Good point. That is true. Now, um, actually, I, I want to I feel the room on this one, because we're, we're kind of bouncing all over the place with this movie, and that's fine. We, we, we all get the gist of it. Um, I want to talk real quick though about there's one scene that always like watching it in hindsight, I realized is not as interesting as I remember. And that's after Cody gets kidnapped, he gets taken to an abandoned opal mine and that's McLeach's hideout. And while he's there, there's a whole cast of cartoonish animals that are just being held captive, including a really doofy, uh, frilled lizard. Um, Oh, I and I, I, none of the comedy here landed with me. None of that landed with me. I just I found I, I, I Frank. The lizard's name is Frank. And I wanted to know what, what, what you two thought of this part, because I'm not I really wasn't feeling the kind of slapstick in this this segment. And I really wasn't feeling Frank as a character. He just seemed kind of <clears throat> obnoxious. I remember as a child being delighted by that scene mainly because he, he just was so dim-witted. And uh, the reality, if you look at what's juxtaposed, is that these poor animals are being kept, they're they're captive and they're shackled. And one kangaroo has um, like a neck shackle. Like it's pretty, pretty dark. Yeah. Uh, and, and they do talk about like the koalas, like, you are going to get out of here. You're going to go out as a belt. You're going to be a purse. You're, like it's, it's really, it's really quite upsetting. So I wonder, and I remember as a child not being too annoyed, but certainly rewatching this in the last couple of days, I, I did feel so irritated by this little lizard guy mm-hmm. and, and his, um, his inability. I was so frustrated because everyone was telling him to keep it down. And, and we all know why, like the uh, Joanna, would go in into the um into that space often through that little doggy door and mm-hmm. it it just made sense like this this little lizard needs to calm down and he wouldn't so i guess two things one is that i wondered if they used that to build tension because because he was so activated and 
could not could not control himself. It created a tension, mm-hmm. uh, not a tension, a space tension. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I think is that the juxtaposition of the comedy and then the reality of of the really dismal situation that they're in may have made it okay to have this scene there. I, I don't know. That's kind of how I'm feeling. Yeah, about yeah it. I sort of got that. I got that sense too. The the idea that. Uh, this was their opportunity to educate children on what poaching is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how well it lands for a child to to be like, you're going as a belt and you're going as a wallet. Uh, but as an adult looking at it, I, I certainly got that sense of like, oh, this is this is our education opportunity. Because <laughs> they, they talk about poaching, but they never discuss what poaching is. They never, you know, he's setting traps and he's got a gun. But we never really and he talks about like how much that eagle's worth, but but for what? Like well so they 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 never really go into what he does with the animals. He he does have that one moment when they're driving to the place where he sings home on the range, but describes how he's going to uh skin through their sides and he'll cut off their hides. And I was like, wow. There's a lot of <laughs> dark moments in this. Like, there's it's very dark. Like, there, there's that whole point of like he said, "Oh, you, uh, Cody's like my mom's gonna look for me. She's gonna call the Rangers." And he's like, "Oh no, she won't." And he throws his bag to the crocodiles. It's like, see, poor kid, been eaten by crocodiles. Oh well. We never get any closure with that scene, by the way, because the last thing we see in the movie is Cody flying away on the eagle, and presumably he goes back to his mom. <laughs> right. The last, t- I think, the last time we see his mom, she's given his backpack by police enforcement. Like yep. she's told, she's essentially told her son has has passed on. Um, and who knows? I mean, does he just live with the eagle? Does he ever go back? <laughs> oh yeah. Not only that, does he go back to those animals that are kept in like cages? We never see them again, by the way. Oh yeah, that's right. After this scene, after McLeach takes uh, Cody and throws him out, we never see any of these other animals again. So we're we're made to understand that he goes back and rescues them. Well, okay. So now we're we're talking about the the rescues. Okay, so it's called the rescuers. But Cody manages to get out on his own for the, if I remember correctly, because they don't even really address him until he's already back at the nest. Like they're like, Oh, hi, we're, we're here. And he's like, Whoa, who who are you kid? Who are you guys? Um, so like there, there isn't really, I mean, from that point forward, they are far more involved, which I think is like an hour into the movie. They're, Mm -hmm. they're, they are more involved. But up to that point, he had already gotten away from like McLeach on his own, right? Did I miss? No, he, he didn't get uh, away from McLeach on his McLeach own. McLeach so. let him go, but was using him as essentially uh, baited him to get right. him to lead him to the eagle nest. So, so yeah, he that, hadn't really gotten he, away. So McLeach lied and said, oh, the eagle's been caught. I heard it on the radio. So there's no right. point anymore. Right. But it was all a lie just to get the kid to go to the eagle's nest. But everything after that, they were basically there for the ride. Yeah. Until, yeah. until they, the end. Uh, they were very, they very ineffectually tried to get Cody to stop, but there was a little too, by then it was too little too late. They spend the most of the movie, honestly, Bernard, Bianca, and, uh, and Jake just trying to get to the place where they know, uh, Cody is. And they just know he's at McLeach's. If but, only, 
if only they had had uh, agents significantly closer, maybe in a satellite office in Australia, they wouldn't have had to have done so much traveling. Yeah, uh, I mean. Uh. By the way, I, I need to make a correction um, that because uh, I brought this up. Um, oh, uh, so the voice of the koala in this the is Douglas Seal, and he actually is the voice of um, the Sultan, like the nineteen, like the Aladdin Sultan. Like from the original 1992 Aladdin. Now, uh, I made a mistake in The Great Mouse Detective by saying the voice actor Val Benton was the Sultan, but I was wrong. Uh, he is, but he's the Sultan in uh, Aladdin and the King of the Thieves and the uh, TV show because Douglas Seal passed away in 1999. Mm. And apparently uh, Val Benton is still kicking and doing his thing. Good but, for you, Val. Uh but right. so yeah, I, I just need to make that correction because in that one I'm like, oh yeah, he does a voice um, of the Sultan, and the, yeah. the the deadpan humor of the koala is my favorite part of that scene. Just yeah, going yeah. back to that real quick, I do like that koala, <laughs> literal deadpan humor. Oh, oh my gosh, oh. that's so bad. And I, and I like the uh, I like the song myself. <laughs> <laughs> home, home on the range, <laughs> which apparently was not George C. Scott. Uh, I read. I read it was Frank Welker. It is Frank Welker. I read that too. Yes. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. So now he's in charge of being the singing voice of uh, another person as well. Percival C. McLeach. <laughs> there's there's genuinely nothing that Frank Welker can't do. Frank Welker is a voice actor in every sense of the word. <laughs> yes. Oh yes. Well, uh, if you hear an animal sound in just about any film or television series. I guarantee you that animal sound was made by Frank Welker. Yes. If it's not Frank Welker, then it's D. Bradley Baker. That too, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um well I think we've I think we've hit most of our bases with this. We're where this was this oh, except I do want to talk about the the climax because this is important. Oh yeah. We're we're now well into this is I think the first one in a while where we have a proper plummet. Oh yeah. A Disney plummet death. So we have our plummet counter. Yeah, and uh, he he does plummet to his death in this one. Falls off the he goes he goes over a waterfall. There's no million mouse strong mouse to save him. Joanna certainly won't. So, do we know? Do we? Do we? I can't remember. Do we? It, is this like a verified kill? Um, I, it's it's pretty heavily implied just from the fact that he pitched over those falls that he is a goner, right? Because we don't see him again, and we never will. Okay. I, they, usually, I think that's a guarantee of a of a Disney of a Disney death. It's a way to kill off a, a character bloodlessly, which became fall, falling deaths became real really prevalent in this period. So oh, I'm yeah. gonna take this well, opportunity. Snow White, Snow yeah, White was the first. To well, do that's it. that's why whenever we tick up our plummet counter, you hear this sound. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, our plummet counter is now ticked up one. Uh, thank you, McLeach. Welcome to the uh, the roster. <laughs> I would actually love to see uh, another movie. I mean, I, 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 I jokingly nitpick a number of the little moments in this movie, but it was a, it's an enjoyable movie. I, I certainly didn't mind it. And because Bob Newhart is still around uh, and still performing, I, I would actually love a third film, uh, even if you can't have... Uh, even if you can't have her to have him maybe bring in a couple of new rescuers uh, as as the older uh, grandfatherly. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if Bernard is long since retired and maybe the kids are 
or doing it or something. I realize it's a trope, but to have Bob Newhart come back and do Bernard one last time would be would be a nice a nice uh, little moment. I think I like that. You know, there's there's a movie that they could do a a live action remake slash reboot of. Like, but no, but, 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 let, let me let me finish. If they wanted <laughs> to do a continuation of the Rescuers universe, they could do one where it's CG mice interacting with. I just like people. this. I really dislike. I this. would love for it to be a completely hand drawn feature animated, you know, kind of thing. But I know how Disney works now, so. <laughs> I still dislike this so much. I don't want. But uh, no, I'm I'm kind of with Brian though. I think it would be cool if there was at least some continuation of the Rescuer is just that universe. You know, they could make a TV show out of this. You realize, like them going oh, on adventures. Oh, I do like that actually. That would be that would have been something they could have done on the Disney afternoon. Well, they they have <laughs> do this. Yeah, that's a good. Like it could be on the. Well, they have their. Um, oh, they could do it on Disney Plus. Well, they have their Disney cartoon section now. Yeah, I forget what yeah. it's called now. Uh, but XD or whatever. Disney XD, yeah. Um, anyway. Um, so yeah. Um, I'm glad I revisited this movie. I, I still really enjoy it, but I think I, I come away with it realizing that, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be enjoyed with this and I still really enjoy it. And I think when the comedy bits do hit, like some of the stuff with John Candy, some of the slapstick, um, some of the, uh, George C. Scott is amazing too in this I as well. I think he is following. And I still, and I still love, uh, Bernard and Bianca as characters. Yeah, um, um, but um, the best. what I realize, what I realize, I think, I think in the in the long run, I think that weirdly enough, the original Rescuers kind of tells a more robust story. Uh, robust story, I, I, weird as that is to admit. But here's another thing too. I think the animation in this is fantastic, oh, and this the is, animation and the score are just mwah, chef kiss. <laughs> I, I I think this I definitely is, have to give I have to give um, props and. And I know I don't think you have a I don't think you have a um, a tradition at the end of each show to to give a I don't know a, a championship recognition. But um, when you speak about animation, um, it's both it's it's Joanna and it's both the the animation of Joanna and her uh, personality and her quirks. That, but just that scene, like the egg stealing scene, oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, amazing with the different movements and um her expressions the way that they animate um her tongue and her eyes and she's she just comes to life i I think it's impressive are we talking about the scene where she's stealing mcleach's eggs or where she's biting the rocks that bernard yeah she's anything involving eggs so when she's stealing his eggs and then when she um when she thinks that she's about to devour the eagle's eggs and realize that uh, realizes that they're just giant rocks. Yeah. yeah. Also, uh, I got to hand it to Bernard. That was uh, some pretty smart thinking. That was actually one of my, my, it was like, well played, Bernard. Well played. He he acted fast in that moment to get that set up. And again, strong mouse to move those giant rocks. Yeah. He had the super strength, so everything yeah. was fun. Ber- uh, Bernard is a, is a secret Hulk. I think also the, an- the uh, action scenes in this are really well animated. It's uh, like, um, there's a film called Nine, uh, which is an okay film, and I'm talking about the animated one. But one it's of the a better film than it was a feature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. No, agreed. Um, but the one thing I do like about it is there are action moments in it that are so well animated, and it's one of those things. It's like I don't know how you could describe that in words, and I feel this is the same here. Like there are action scenes in this, like you couldn't write down in words. It has to be drawn, mm-hmm. and 
like them getting caught in the um, wheels of the car and trying to survive that. That like that is uh-huh. quite an incredibly animated scene. So, and again, I think that some of the best animation in the movie. And I, I'm, I'm with you, Drea. I love the bits with with Joanna. Like that really makes her. And again, this is a character who doesn't speak, so the animation has to tell a lot of it. I mean, props to Frank Welker right. for giving her good grunts and and uh, hisses and things like that. But um, it's almost like the same reason I enjoy a film like the first opening parts of WALL-E. You really have to let the animation tell the story. And I think, bringing it full circle, that's the reason the eagle scene at the beginning, the first 10 minutes of the movie, is so compelling. Because it's almost just animation. It's a, it's a moment, it's a thing that happens, and it's just through animation. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, this kid is going on this whirlwind flight through the outback with with this eagle and it's he's it's just like it's you it's a little euphoric you know absolutely i'm a little surprised uh maybe i missed it i'm a little surprised that there wasn't a like a like a can you feel the love tonight sort of (laughs) song like between the kid and the eagle (laughs) (laughs) no 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 no, but i mean like there's always there's always you know in the in the modern disney there's always the oscar nominated song now granted that would have started with that would have eating start- the beast and the lion king and you know so it would have been just after this movie but i'm surprised that in that moment it's just a swelling score and not some big big song i, I can confirm this so little mermaid was the first to actually start this tradition and this was just before like a year before this film so i think they were still trying to dip their toes in to figure out oh should we continue with action should we go down the um uh go down the more musical route with uh alan menken and howard ashman and they're like mm. but then they see L- little mermaid does amazingly well and then uh, this film does okay, and I think they start to realize, let's go down the more musical route. But it's kind of refreshing. This is the last movie that I can think of off the top of my head, and it might actually be the last movie for ages that forgoes having any sort of uh, musical segments and just has a really good score mm-hmm. and lets the adventure and the story kind of just do its thing. And I kind of like that. It's kind of refreshing. I wish Disney had done more like this after this point not that i don't they do enjoy the musicals not that i don't enjoy those moments but it's almost every movie after this is gonna have the song and the musical well well, that's not true there is a point after um i would say tarzan where this comes into play a bit more there's a lot more action-packed films that um don't really have a song driving after tarzan after Tarzan? Well, think like Bolts and... Uh, oh, the era of movies I didn't watch. So. Yes, the era of, Yeah, those films. <laughs> We're going to have to get to those eventually. And uh, you'll start to see, oh, okay, these are more like action-based. They're okay. also... There isn't as many songs. Like Treasure mm-hmm. Planet um, didn't have any songs either, except for like that one pop star song. I, I oh yeah, you I had forgotten about Treasure. Uh, other, but I like okay. Well, I mean, we're we're tangenting. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> but you'll see that soon. You'll 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 start to notice that the, that'll be a trend after this whole uh renaissance. So. I'll I'll keep an eye out because we're going to get to it eventually. But yeah, I just saying for this period in time, this was a nice break mm-hmm. from what is I know is going to be uh, just uh, an era of musicals. And I don't get me wrong, still enjoy the musicals, but I also enjoy a film like this that's all about the adventure and the uh, the environments and the characters and the 
I can't get over the score. I don't know. It's just that the, the little lay motifs tell the story so well. Mm. Especially the sort of rescue aid society theme. Um, you know, the, um, <laughs> that one, it's, it's, it's memorable. you now, you now have to pay for that. Oh, well, <laughs> you've done just enough bars that you know. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I think, uh, I think that just about covers it. it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Great. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah. I appreciate being a part of this one because, uh, clearly, uh, this was a formative film for me. And, I'm, you know, I'm not even sure that I could articulate just how much um, meaning it had for me as an animated uh, film. But I, I do acknowledge that Disney or maybe Disney fans maybe underappreciate this film because when I went to Disney Plus to find it, it's not listed in the um, in the category of, of animation or animated movies I, I forgot what it's actually called you have to go and search we had think, to do that too yeah we, we watched well, it on disney plus as well yeah so so i don't know if that's because i don't know how many they pick maybe they pick 15 to 20 movies to slot into that category and this didn't quite make the cut but um i, I just thought that fit with my just my concept that this film is under kind of underappreciated or, or overlooked yeah, I, I would say this is actually one of the most underrated Disney films. I completely agree. There's something about the way that this is this is animated and this is done that just makes me feel good. Like there's there's a way that the animation is done in this that I think carries so strongly forward into the way that animation is done in the future, and it feels like a gateway into mm-hmm. the way that animation is going to go forward into the '90s. Well, and, and I'm sure the two of you have seen the amazing documentary *Waking Sleeping Beauty*. We have not actually. Oh is my it on, god! Is it on Disney Plus? It is on Disney Plus. Yes. I got so excited when I saw it on there. I, I haven't uh, watched it again, but you know, I've I uh, when I saw that film. Uh, in theaters, I then instantly had to get the DVD as soon as it came out. And so it, it's one that I highly recommend. But they specifically that's really where I know this film from is is there's a little segment in there where they talk about the opening weekend of this of this film and getting the call that basically it's dead in the water. And they they talk about the amazing uh, technological feats that they were trying out on this film. And they were so excited for people to see it. Uh, so knowing that heartbreaking moment and then realizing where all that technology then went, uh, because really when you're talking about an animated film, you said Little Mermaid was released a year later. Is that right? Earlier. Uh, oh, so that was re- released a year earlier. OK, got it. So, yeah, because all these films are in development and in production at the same time. I mean, it's, it takes years. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it's interesting to watch them get excited over one project and then um and then watch that technology move on to the next the next film the next series of films uh it's pretty fantastic but yes it is on disney plus you absolutely as disney fans must watch this film for sure uh i know i've been wanting to watch that and the uh the imagineering story i know that's a documentary those are those are terrific uh and they're so densely packed uh you know you don't feel like you don't feel like it's a it's an hour long show. I mean, it is. You feel like you've watched like ninety minutes per episode, but it's only an hour. Wow. So, yeah. That's yeah, fa- it's, yeah. That's fantastic. All right, I'll take that recommendation. Thank you. And yeah, um, I mean, I figured we would. One of the reasons we've been talking about doing this episode uh, 
together for a while now. So I'm glad uh, we could make the time to do it. Uh, thank you both for joining us, and especially knowing you both uh, as we do know you as, as fans of, of animation. I mean, uh, this is sort of my awkward way of t- saying, hey, why don't you tell them about uh, some of the podcasts you do? Tell our listeners, just in case they don't know. We would love to. So Brian and I are both the hosts of the Arkham Sessions, which is a podcast dedicated to the psychology of Batman, the animated series. And for some for some reason, we've managed to get through over 120, 117 episodes of well, the we, animated series. Yeah, however many. Oh, yeah, yeah. Our podcast is now up to like 138 episodes, yeah. something wow. like that. Uh, we've finished the animated series and now we've moved on to Doom Patrol, which can be viewed on the DC Universe. Um, but uh, but yeah, the psychology of Batman, the animated series. And, uh, and then you've also got Lattes with Leia. I do. So I co-host a show uh, all about Star Wars uh, with my co-host Amy Ratcliffe. And it is a monthly podcast that really is just about two ladies who like Star Wars and we just sit around and drink lattes and talk about what we love. All right. So again, uh, thank you for joining us. And um, next time, well, actually very soon on the heels of this one, uh, we're going to be talking about a little little film you might have heard of. Yes. Maybe. Possibly. Um, it's got a it's got a it's got some it was it's, it's that is that uh, Jean Cocteau film, right? <laughs> the animated adaptation of Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Because surely it's it's just like, you know, it's just that. It's not like any they took any major liberties and wrote some award-winning songs or anything. And you're, you are grinning at me. I am so excited God, for when this you watch, When you watch that documentary, you have to tell me. You, you have, we have to talk about it. Oh, we of will. course. Of course. Absolutely. We, I, I sometimes feel like we don't get to talk enough because we only ever bump into each other at conventions. But, hey, this has been, this has been fantastic. So, uh, yeah, until, um, until next time, I guess we'll sign off and, uh, and uh, take care. Uh, and also be careful around strange eagles. They might carry you into the stratosphere where you will lose oxygen. <laughs> I w- I would to- do- that would be my dream. Or back to their nest. Clearly. <laughs> well, thank you for having us. We, uh, we had a great time and we can't wait to catch up again. Absolutely. Hello out there in Benview Podcast Land. My name is Josh, and this is Jesse. Hello. And we happen to do a podcast about video games called the Extra Damage Cast. Indeed we do. If you like to talk about video games, or more accurately, listen to other people talk about video games, you should check out our podcast. It's at extradamage.com or on the Benview Network website, whatever that is. This podcast is a part of the Benview Network. You can find this and other podcasts like it at BenviewNetwork.com.